Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hi, welcome back to Making Action Happen with uh, our wonderful uh, Colorado Farm Bureau crew today. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. Welcome back. We've uh, met a few times before with uh, Farm Bureau. Uh, Probably one of our most popular shows was with Sean Martini, who talked about wolf interjection. We're going to talk about that again today. We're also going to talk about meat in, meat out, and all the fun, uh, interesting, sometimes entertaining things that have been happening there. And then in the second half of our show, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, this new initiative, Initiative 16, that we're calling... um, pause. And I don't have very nice things to say about it, but we'll get into that in the second half of the show. Today I've got joining us is the Executive VP for Colorado Farm Bureau, uh, Mr. Chad Vorthman. I've also got the Policy um, VP, Sean Martini, and Taylor Sal. I'm never going to say this wrong. A hundred years later, I just don't even know how to say it right. Salagi. It's a doozy. Salagi. She's a good Italian girl. Um, So we are just going to talk about a couple of those things, but we're really asking the question today, what does the future of ag in Colorado look like? And there's a whole lot every single day. It seems like there's something new that you guys are going to have to deal with. So Taylor, I want to start with you. Tell us a little bit about, especially for those of us, uh, our listeners who live outside of Colorado, what happened with this whole meet in and meet out thing? Sure, I'd love to. First of all, happy Ag Week to everybody. Yay! Uh, we're getting at the end of that and had a lot of celebrations this week. But to give you some background, a couple um, weeks ago at this point, uh, we found out that the governor was going to proclaim March 20th as Meat Out Day, encouraging Coloradans not to eat meat. And he went on to quote some statistics that aren't accurate about the nutritional value and and really fired up farmers and ranchers across the state, right? Ag is the second largest industry. Um, We all know that meat is an important part of a balanced diet and is important to everybody, everybody's health. Um, And all of a sudden it sort of exploded, right? Colorado Farm Bureau, Colorado Cattlemen's Association, the Wool Growers Association, Colorado Pork, everybody started having these grassroots events pop up all over the state. And man did Colorado and show up. (laughs) So March 20th went from meet out to meet in. And we were talking, encouraging everybody to go grill a burger. And, you know, Saturday was full of events. I think you, you all were in Pueblo County and we, I was down in the San Luis Valley. Chad was out on the Western slope traveling everywhere. It was crazy because it it wasn't certainly in rural Colorado. It was a event, but there was people texting me pictures from around the nation. Um, I was getting my hair cut yesterday and the person that was cutting my hair was talking about <laughs> how her friend was all about like, we're gonna eat meat and we're gonna, you know, smoke brisket and, and grill and barbecue on Saturday. And they were just so excited about it. So. It's So what do you think, so first of all, for all of our veggie loving friends out there, they can't figure out why, what the big hullabaloo is about. So do you guys have any idea, like, can you explain a little bit 
Why? I mean, because honestly, veggies are a good part of your, and a vegan lifestyle is great for people who are good with that. We love it. We we support you if you want to do that. Um, but so what was the big deal? That's the big question we keep hearing. Yeah, let's hear Yeah, so I, I think it, this was different from other proclamations um, in that it promoted, um, you know, vegan and vegetarianism and taking meat out of your diet um, by tearing down the meat and livestock industry rather than building up the benefits of going vegan or, or vegetarian, right? Uh, most proclamations are, are focused on being positive about the subject that they're talking about. In this case, it was less positive about vegetarianism and more negative about meat and livestock um, and used a lot of, um, you know, like Taylor mentioned, um, bad statistics and, and, and fallacies about livestock industry's impact on the environment and sustainability and that sort of thing. And I think that's what really tripped people off is it, it wasn't building up vegetarianism. It was tearing down um, the consumption of meat and the livestock industry generally. And, and I think there's a, a trend in rural areas where there are, there are a small percentage of the population um, politically, they don't feel like they're, they're being heard. Um, you usually the, have used the example of Northwest Colorado before that, you know, you look up in Northwest Colorado, they're, they're losing oil and gas. Yeah. They're losing uh, energy production, traditional energy production from coal. Now we have wolves being reintroduced and an attack on the ag economy. Wait, what do they have left? And, and that's when, when people start lashing out, when, you know, the only response that they feel like they're getting from government, uh, from, from others is retraining. Well, it, it's just not that simple. And people want their, their rural lifestyle to be protected and to be celebrated. That's what we're doing here in, in, during Ag Week is we, we celebrate all of agriculture. We don't celebrate one part of it over the other. So how does the, and maybe that's the real reason that everybody got so fired up about it because it was more than attack on meat consumption. Like you said, it was really a an attack on the way of life of people who are not vegan and there's not and and what they do and what they stand for and what they've devoted their lives to i think that's maybe the the big thing that got everybody fired up do you think yeah mm -hmm. definitely i think it's also very much a conversation about what ag looks like in this state right and it's not just about the farmers and ranchers that are you know growing cattle or sheep it's also about ag business and when you see um some of the biggest agriculture businesses in the state start to think that maybe this isn't a friendly environment. I mean, that has a bigger impact than just what somebody's choosing to eat for dinner. So it was a good conversation and it really fired people up, which was pretty incredible. There were, at my last count last, before it was Saturday, there were over 115 events that we knew about yeah. scheduled, which is crazy all over the state. It included restaurants that were doing promotions, come in and, um, get so much off of, get a discount off of your meatballs, come grab a steak, come get a burger. It was pretty incredible. Um, and some pretty massive impacts from it too. It was just, it was awesome. So the, the governor sent out another proclamation on for Monday and it was meat producer. He was that right for Monday? Livestock proud. Oh, livestock proud on Monday. Do you think yeah. that is it indicative of the message was sent or the message was received by the governor? I, I don't know. I think some of the livestock groups just said, 
well, we should have a day two. And the governor was like, okay, we'll yeah. do a proclamation. We'll do an, we'll do another proclamation. Yeah. Look, the and governor's response to this whole thing was these, this is a box checking exercise. These requests come in, we look at it, we auto pen it and it's pro forma, non-binding, that kind of thing. Right. And so that proclamation was in the pile with the rest of them. I think the difference with the meet out proclamation was that it was negative and exclusionary um, and none of the others are. And that's what really tripped people off. And it's, you know, just seeing what happened with it. Um, anytime you're, as a parent, you tell your kid to do something or not to do it, they're going to do it. So <laughs> it, it actually, it helped us out. <laughs> Very true. True, true. And I think there was another community component to this too, with, with everything going on with COVID and restrictions being put in place. Uh, places being shut down, having an open, free community barbecue meant a lot yeah. to rural communities, yeah. a, a lot. It's and, true. and it was a place that uh, I think a lot of rural communities haven't seen the impacts maybe that we've seen in the, the urban areas of COVID um, and have been really questioning the regulations. But at the same time, they, they were shut down from these kind of events throughout the year as well. And, and this was an opportunity the day it was, a, I don't know if we could ask perfect for a day. more perfect day in March um, to have this statewide, but it, it was certainly a, a, a great opportunity for folks to get together in a, a safe manner outside and, and enjoy a burger with their neighbors. I don't think, cause we did, I went to the one in Colorado city that was for the Greenhorn Valley. And as I looked around, there was a whole lot of people I hadn't seen in over a year, a whole lot of people mm. and the affection and that was with between everybody and just getting to see everybody and the FAA kids or the FFA kids were just so great. And they did this, they served everybody and they had their jackets on and um, I had parents texting me, can you please send me pictures? And it was amazing. Um, and I, I don't know that we'd all felt, felt the love so much as we did that day. I thought it was precious. It um, was. It was really cool. I was down in Monta Vista at the co-op and just to see everybody show up again, all of the 4-H and FFA kids, they were serving food. It was like, it was fair time again. Everybody was excited. The potato guys were there. The beef guys were there. You know, everyone just showed up full on ready to support. And like, we're still counting some of the impacts, but our last count was over $300,000 were raised for a bunch of different organizations. Like um, what? Whether that be 4-H and FFA youth groups, Alamosa uh, County, they donated a thousand pounds of beef to the La Puente homeless shelter. Oh, yes. So it's just pretty incredible. All of the, everybody came up and not only did they celebrate together, but they pulled out their checkbooks and they just showed their love for each other and the location I was at in, in Southwest Colorado was raising money for their fire department. I mean, it was really, it was, you, you think about all these charities that we support throughout the year and, and in rural communities, it was a, it was another nod to some of those that didn't get to have the pancake breakfast and didn't get to have these kind of events throughout the year. Um, and just trying to help them, you know, keep their doors open and stay afloat. It was a really cool way to take something that was negative and turn it into an unmitigated positive. And I mean, like Chad said, people wanted to get out. Everybody was happy. They were, you know, supportive and, and positive events. It wasn't a protest and it wasn't people tearing down, you know, uh, what was going on in Denver and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. It was all really nice and supportive and people were happy to see each other. Well, I'll tell you, one of my twins uh, looked at me and he goes, 
he was asking about this and we were sort of explaining why we were doing this. And he goes, so actually this really is a protest, right? And I go, actually, I guess it is kind of a protest. He goes, but the right way to do it, right? And I'm like, (laughs) yes, the right way to do a protest. So let's talk a little bit about, um, and we've talked a lot with you guys already about this, but uh, can we have a follow-up report on what's happening with wolf introduction in um, into Colorado where it really doesn't need to happen. I'll say it, you guys can't say it, but I'll say it, it doesn't really need to happen. Um, but there's been some interesting things again with some counties. Um, Rio Blanco County said that they were gonna have a, a wolf introduction sanctuary, meaning they're not gonna accept wolves into their, how's all that working now? Yeah, there's a lot going on. And as Chad sort of alluded to, and as part of the broader context of most of the conversation that we're gonna have here today, it's it's the litany of things that rural Colorado is facing that folks in Denver and in the Capitol and in the governor's office don't necessarily see um, in toto as something that's that's terribly bad for rural Colorado, but we see all the things lined up in a row. You follow that bouncing ball, things are not looking good, right? And wolf introduction is, is another one of those things. Um, you know, it was a terribly contentious campaign and people who were in Western Colorado who are going to have to play host to these wolves now um, had their voice completely drowned out by people on the front range who are never going to have to deal with the consequences of introducing wolves. Um, And people are pretty emotional about that. And uh, the governor showed up to the first meeting of the Colorado Wildlife Commission and asked them to do this as fast as possible. Wanted wolves on the ground by the end of this year. So that tripped off a whole nother, um, you know, round of of folks in Western Colorado being upset. Probably not a very appropriate thing to ask for in hindsight. Um, But to their credit, the Wildlife Commission listened to what their staff had told them about how this process has gone in other states um, and said, no, we're not going to rush it. We're going to take all the time allowed to us by the statute and do this right so that folks who are going to be impacted by this are heard. Um, and we use the best science available in order to make, you know, as much lemonade out of the lemons we were given as possible. Um, so to your question on, on where we are, the Colorado Wildlife Commission asked staff to move forward on their process. They've approved a plan in terms of how they're going to do um, the plan writing, essentially the plan for the plan. Um, they're going to hold a number of meetings um, around the state to get Uh, voter feedback. They have uh, a stakeholder committee that's uh, made up of different groups of Coloradans who are going to come in and advise and try and come to some agreement on best practices for what the the final program for wolf introduction will look like. They'll also have a technical committee um, made up of, of, uh, you know, scientists and biologists and ecologists and the folks that, that know how to look at the data and crunch the numbers, figure out how many wolves, where they're going to be, what the management process is going to look like going forward. Um, and so all of that will ultimately come together and they'll, they'll come up with a plan here uh, probably by the end of the, of the next year or so. Um, but there's a long way to go and there's a lot of engagement that's going to have to take, uh, take place between now and then. Remind me where the wolves are that they're going to displace into Colorado. Remind me where they're going to come from. We don't know yet. They could are they going to trap them from someplace? Or there's a bunch of different sources. It could be something along those lines from the Northern Rockies. Uh, you know, we we don't know yet, and that's one of the questions that Parks and Wildlife staff has and needs to figure out how they're going to answer. Also, how they're going to do that in a way that doesn't conflict and works um, in works. Um, alongside the federal process and federal wolf management programs to the extent that that species is still um, 
uh, under the jurisdiction of the Endangered Species Act. So, so where is, and I hadn't even thought about the, the fact that they're endangered species mm-hmm. in some places. So that's an interesting um, little wrinkle in all of that. Um, and also, have they been able to track and really find out where the wolves that are already here are at? So they're not putting them in, I mean, in, and straining the wolf population that's already here? Yeah, they're, they're uh, CPW staff is working on that a little bit more, trying to identify what the pack in Northwest Colorado looks like um, and where they came from, how many there are, how many they can expect to, to continue going forward. We think that's a really important part of the process and should be fed into the planning um, so that if the final plan says X number of wolves need to be introduced into the state of Colorado to have a viable population, that number can be reduced by the amount that are already here. Right. Right. Um, and, and, you know, more might range in over the next year, year and a half or so. They just found a wolf in the panhandle of Nebraska um, that's genetic markers go back to the Great Lakes wolf populations. So the things roam and they go yeah. all over the place and we can expect that to happen more. Um, and that should be a, a significant piece that's taken into consideration for the wolf management plan in Colorado going forward. I was just going to ask that. Um, are the bordering states of Colorado, was there pushback from them? Are they pushing back now? Um, how do they feel about this? Like Wyoming, I'm sure Wyoming doesn't want wolves to just magically appear in Wyoming. On their border, yeah. yeah. Wyoming's, they're coming through Wyoming down okay. from Yellowstone. That's where our population in Northwest Colorado has okay. mainly come from. But to Chad's point, it's it's Eastern Utah. Those guys are, consider, are, are very worried because they don't currently, to mm-hmm. the best of our knowledge, have any ranging into that state. Um, but now that you've got a significant new number being sort of airdropped into Colorado, um, it's completely, um, you know, within the realm of the conceivable that they're going to range west into Utah as well, um, where, frankly, there's lower population density and there's much more appropriate habitat for them than most of the central mountain corridor where there's condos and resorts and pipelines and transmission lines and factories and lots of homes and that sort of thing. I think and, and maybe just reading what some of the commissioners said in, in Rio Blanco County is, um, and, and I can't blame them for this view. In fact, I, I absolutely agree with them. The part that's really hard to swallow about all of this is this is a major thing that's going to happen. And the people who voted on it have nothing whatsoever to do about it. So what basically what you're saying is we're going to have somebody to vote on what's going to happen in my personal life that has never met me, has never lived my lifestyle, has never been even over to my part of the state. And they're the ones that get to decide how this all works in spite of, or in the face of what the science and the biologists are saying. Mm -hmm. So if it can happen here on this particular issue, what's preventing that from happening again in a different, on a different front. Um, So I think that's what, so with, you sort, of, you sort of touched on the one of the broader and overall mm-hmm. or, you know, foundational problems with citizen petitions in the state of Colorado um, and sort of the, the lax set of rules around them and what people can get on the ballot and what the content of the ballot initiatives say, right? There's no check on that sort of thing right. in our current process. And that's one of the problems with citizen petitionative petitions generally is that they can do that. And it's ironically really undemocratic. Well, and there's no, and I think you said it, Chad, in a different interview is that there's no stakeholder input. There's no amendments. There's no way around it. It's just is what it is. And as soon as the secretary certifies the title on it, 
we're on our way and we'll get into pause in a minute, but that's the, I think that's the concern. And that, and that's one of the, the, the big things like when the pause amendment that we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, when that hit folks radar, um, there was a lot of confusion because they, they think it's like legislation. They, they, there was blame to call the governor, call your legislator, have them fix this. Well, once a, a initiative gets fairly early into the process, there's not any, even an opportunity for the proponents to rewrite it, even if they wanted to, if they saw that there was a problem. Have to start from the beginning yeah. if they want to. So they have to, they, they would have to pull the initiative, throw out every all the work that they've done and start over. So that, and I think that's why we see a lot of these initiatives that are not, not thoroughly thought out from end to end in Colorado. So who on the wolves, who was paying for that initiative? I know that Colorado Farm Bureau put a lot of money and effort into fighting that. I know you guys worked really, really hard and you tried to get in front of it from the very beginning. But a lot of the money that was supporting the initiative to begin with, was that Colorado money? Was that Colorado citizens or was that somebody else? Some from Colorado, but mainly New York, Washington, D.C. and California. Yeah. So there was, a, there was a group, the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, that mm-hmm. was, was kind of put together. But a lot of that funding... It comes from from other places. So Sierra from other states, yeah, others. Sierra Club, other yeah. states that have nothing whatsoever to do with how Coloradans live right now. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, one more question, and I think it was interesting. It was pretty bold for the Rio Blanco County commissioners to say that this is going to be a sanctuary. How effective is that declaration going to be? I think that's you know, the question. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's the question. It's a, I think it's a resolution, you know. Um, and so, in terms of the, how much that that's legally binding, I think that's fairly questionable. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, it sends a message. That that's the yeah. good thing. Um, but it's you know, rock in a hard place. You've got Colorado Parks and Wildlife who have a statutory requirement to do this, right? And then you've got counties saying no, you can't. So you know, we'll we'll see what happens. So the, the state will win out in the end on that. So, But it, it still sends a message. That's it, the yeah. important thing. Yep. That it sends a message that this is not what we want. This is not what's going to work for us. And I guess you better do a darn good job on answering all the questions that we already, that we already put up. Um, if there's a message on, um, on either me in, me out that you hope to get out or also on wolves in the last couple minutes, we have... Yeah, I think the biggest thing about me in and sort of all the conversations we're having about urban Colorado, understanding what our rural, our rural friends and communities are doing. It's just that this is a great week. It's ag week. It was a great culmination of understanding what the second largest industry, the impacts that agriculture has on the entire state and sort of the the corners of everybody's daily lives that it touches, whether it's, you know, fueling everybody's plates or um, contributing tax dollars or having agribusiness and restaurants be able to, you know, survive. And I think it, it's, it was a good opportunity to bring everybody together and hopefully we can carry that momentum and that energy into all of the other conversations we have. And remember that we're we're neighbors and communities and we're all in this together. It, it, and it certainly got the governor's attention too. And, you know, he had to share his secret brisket recipe with everyone. <laughs> I haven't tried it yet, but, um, it, you know, it, it got him to, to show support for the industry as well. It's been interesting in that, um, you know, over the past few years, at least, the, the tie between rural and, and urban areas has been fraying a little bit. Um, but in the past, there's always been recognition that um, 
urban Colorado needs rural Colorado just as much as rural Colorado needs urban Colorado. And Governor Hickenlooper was one who actually talked about that fairly frequently um, and, and brought that theme up quite a bit. And I think the fact that he sort of led on that and talked about it at least helped a lot in, in sort of bridging that divide. And it, it's clear that we don't always have that message being sent um, currently. Um, and that's why you get things like meet in and meet out and, and the extent that we had support from folks and saw as much participation in urban and suburban areas in Colorado for meet in shows that that tie is still there. We just have to work to cultivate it. So my favorite thing about this last few weeks um, and the month is one of the things that um, ag is really, really not good about is tooting your own horn. You guys are not good about saying, here's what we do. You guys are too busy working. I get it. Um, but I've always thought that the general public should understand better how um, close the, all the tech that's involved, um, all the practices and how they've been updated over the years, how you guys have actually used science um, in a lot of ways to produce food, all of those great things that you guys have done that you just don't talk about. Maybe my favorite thing in the last couple of years has been that you guys actually have or the last few weeks is that's actually come to the forefront in a way that um, has not happened in a really long time as, as I see it. Yeah. And it's important. And I, I try to point it out as much as possible that whenever you're talking ag, um, you know, what's one of the, the, the most important issues on voters' minds in Colorado, they, they always go back to climate change and environmental stewardism. And I always point out that you'll never find a better environmentalist than an ag producer or a farmer because you can't, you have to take care of the land because that's your livelihood, your life, your, you know, your living. And I think that that can't be said enough. And I, I really, I really try to get that message out. And with Action 22, we're trying to get that message out more and more because, you know, you talk to somebody that's never traveled outside of Denver, you know, they don't know. Um, mm -hmm. There was the reporter that was flying on the airplane and he saw the, uh, the farms and he had never seen farms. He's like, what are those little circles, circles. down there? If you, if you remember that, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. So it's important to get that message out and make people aware of what you actually do and how important it is to Colorado. And yeah, that's. Yeah. All right, we're gonna come back in a minute after a little bit of a break and we're gonna talk about um, pause, but all the other legislation that um, you guys are working on right now. It feels like every day there's something new during this session that has specifically to do with ag. Um, we'll talk about that and a few other things right back after these messages. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders. Excel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, 
You can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen. Hi, welcome back to Making Action Happen. We are sitting at the Colorado Farm Bureau office in Denver uh, with some of my very favorite people. Uh, we've got uh, Chad Borthman, who is Executive VP for, for um, Colorado Farm Bureau. He's also on the Action 22 executive team. We've also got Sean Martini and Taylor, what's her name? Um, <laughs> with us. Salami. That's my favorite one yet. <laughs> You'll, we'll never forget all what's her name. Um, so the most enraging thing, and this isn't a pretty enraging session, but the most enraging thing that I've seen in a really long time is this Initiative 16 um, called PAUSE, but it would effectively um, make animal husbandry illegal, a crime in Colorado. And I want to talk a little bit about that. But before we dive in too deep, I'm just going to say that the people um, who are who initiated this initiative must hate Coloradans. That's the only thing I can think. They just must absolutely hate Coloradans. I don't know how anybody justifies in their minds to make animal husbandry a crime. And so you guys have been dealing with this already. You guys have had a lot of interviews about this. Just say what you think about this. I'll say what I think, but you guys say what you think about what's going on, where this is at, and what we do next about this. So Yeah, so th- this is without a doubt. I've been in Colorado 20 years, um, but I think in the history of our ballot initiative process, this is probably the worst ballot initiative that's ever been filed. 
uh, certainly our people see it as that. Um, it's going to criminalize farmers, ranchers, veterinarians for doing common practices that we've done for generations uh, in breeding livestock and improving the, the genetics of our herd. Uh, it, it changes some statutory language to define common air, uh, animal care practices as cruelty to animals. It, it just really oversteps the bounds in a lot of areas and, and should be a signal to the, the greater population of Colorado that maybe our ballot initiative process that we love so much, that we love access to that ballot, maybe it needs to be relooked at someday. Um, we, we, as an organization, have been watching this uh, along with the other livestock groups from the day it dropped uh, and been following it very closely. But um, kind of like the, the, the meet in, meet out day, um, that, that cauldron in rural Colorado was, was boiling. And when Title Board uh, accepted the, the uh, initiative last week, Wednesday, uh, set the title and, and at that point declared it was single subject, uh, we saw an interruption, um, really not only in Colorado, but nationally. Uh, my phone's been, all of our phones been ringing off the hook uh, with others around the nation going, what is going on in Colorado? Um, since then, we've kind of uh, seen some of these similar issues pop up. There's a, an initiative in Oregon. Um, there's a animal welfare initiative down in, in Arizona. Um, so it, we're kind of starting to piece together parts of the puzzle going, maybe this is more of a concerted effort to make some kind of odd statement that I don't I don't fully understand. So give us some details. Um, if you haven't read or you don't know about this pause and you're feeling a little bit of passion here um, with all of us who are advocates for ag around the, give us some details about what is actually included in this. Sure. So two big things. One, it essentially bans the harvesting of livestock in the state of Colorado. And it does that by mandating that you are guilty of animal cruelty. If you slaughter an animal, if it hasn't lived up to 25% of its expected lifespan. And then they go ahead and, and list expected lifespans for different species. So what that means is, you know, the average age for harvest for a fat steer uh, to go into, into the meat supply chain um, is, is 18 months or so. Um, the initiative would require that they have to be five years old or older. Nobody wants to eat a five-year-old steer, right? Um, so it essentially shuts down beef processing and livestock processing in the state of Colorado. And this, in, in one part that, that's important to note about that is uh, in order to be in the export market, we're exporting beef that's under 30 months of age. Right. By law, so, by, by international by, treaty. Yeah. International treaty under law. So it effectively kills a billion dollar industry in Colorado, just our exports. Just market. on exports alone. Yep. Just on that. Uh, yep. And, 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 and overall, the processing, livestock processing supply chain in the state is somewhere between five and $7 billion just on its own. So that gets shut down and leaves and probably you know, tens of thousands of jobs, at least associated with that kind of a thing. The second big thing that it does is it essentially makes veterinarians, farmers, ranchers, um, anybody who's caring for livestock guilty of quote, sexual contact with animals if they engage in standard veterinary animal care practices that we do on farms and ranches all the time and have done for decades. Um, so I have a question about that. I read through several times, I've read through the initiative. Mm -hmm. 
And the proponents of the initiative say that this isn't true, but I don't see by the language how it delineates this. So this would effectively prevent you from neutering or spaying your dogs and cats, your pets. There's no difference, right? They, I mean, they say they list animals, anything domesticated, including fish, by the way, which I thought was, again, another step in the, in the direction of insanity um, to, to have fish as domestic. I mean, goldfish, okay. But, mm-hmm. um, but then they say that you can't do that with livestock, but you, but you can't, or you can't do that with livestock, but you can do that with dogs and cats. Did you read that the same way? This is another one of the problems with citizen initiatives that Chad alluded to and we've talked to, right? What they say they're trying to do and what the text that they've written up is actually going to do are always two different things. And in this case, the language in this is really squirrely and it could be interpreted in lots of different ways. And ultimately, should it pass, that's going to be up to a court and up to regulatory agencies to try and figure out what those rules are and divine what voters wanted. Again, I don't think this is going to pass. This is so crazy. But should it pass, that's what the effect would be. But none of us thought that logically wolves would pass either. <laughs> this I is mean, the logically concern. we didn't. I mean, this is a concern. I mean, and, and this is why, you know, um, uh, not only nonprofit associations like the Farm Bureau and the Cattlemen's Association and, uh, and the Livestock Association, egg producers and dairy producers alike, are going to have to step up and, and push back on this campaign. Agribusiness is really going to have to be supportive in a real way. The business community is really going to have to be supportive in a real way. We're ready to, to mount this campaign and have this fight, but we can't afford to do it by ourselves. And if nothing is done, it'll pass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It will pass. So in it, and I, I read through it, um, I didn't get into all the details, but you mentioned fish. Are fish included in the, like the slaughter of the fish for food that has to live 25% of its life? I can't remember if they, curious. If they outlined a lifespan for fish or not. I just I, say, yeah, yeah, in the initiative, it just adds them as being livestock now. Sure. Um, yeah. And then the, the, all of the, all of the um, exemptions for normal, uh, husbandry practices, veterinary practices, they're not exempt from animal cruelty anymore. You know, if, if you're doing everything that you can to, to raise an animal the best you can, it can still be considered cruelty. So it, it certainly steps over a lot of barriers and a lot of bounds. So when they reintroduce the wolves, how are they going to breed them then if this passes? <laughs> well, <laughs> tiger story. You want me to go get my two? <laughs> no. It's- well, uh, yeah, there was a, there was a, a tiger. We saw that, that tiger in the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo mm-hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago that, that died uh, under sedation. Um, but they were trying to, a female tiger, they were trying to artificially inseminate. Are, the, are, are those people felons? Are, are those people criminals? Yeah. They would be under this. They are, they, are they sexual, coming into sexual contact with an animal? No. No. I'm, I mean, that, that's what this initiative would have, have it be in the eyes of the law if it were to pass. Yeah. Who, who's pushing this? Who's behind this? A couple of guys from Boulder. Um, several they're associated with animal rights organizations. One of them is associated with PETA. Um, so it's not, it's not unreasonable to assume those kinds of organizations are helping them in drafting this and getting through the process and, and put it in front of voters. Has there been anything like this anywhere else in the country? 
Not that we're aware of. No, uh, the the only other filed initiative that we've seen is the Oregon one that that kind of goes at these similar statutes mm -hmm. for sexual abuse and those kind of things. Okay, so if you would help me walk through this whole process that we're talking about, because we have we have a lot of listeners out of the state of Colorado, mm -hmm. and I'm not entirely sure that even a, a lot of folks in the state of Colorado understand our ballot initiative process here and how it goes and how something like this could be introduced and actually put on a ballot. So can you kind of walk us through how that goes and then where it's at right now? Yeah, it might be a really foreign process to folks that you have from out of state, even folks who aren't in the West because citizen initiatives, um, citizen ballot initiatives are, are very much a feature of the Western states, not so much back East. Um, so it might be completely foreign to people from back there for sure. But it, it's it's a problem here in Colorado and a number of neighboring states, uh, Arizona, Oregon, Missouri has a fairly lax process California. for citizen initiatives to the ballot. California is one of them as well. Um, but Chad can take you through the process. He, he we do a lot of education on this because when these things pop up, you're right, people don't know and it's a weird process and it's counterintuitive in terms of how it operates. And, and it's and the bottom line is it's very much set up for citizens to have access to their to their ballot, to their government, to change things on their own if they don't feel the elected representatives are, are doing this for them. I think where it misses a step is there really is no process for it to be improved substantially along the way. But it starts with an idea, you, you, you scratch it down on the back of a bar napkin and um, you know get it submitted to the Secretary of State. Once that's done, then the process is really kind of on a little bit of a roller coaster heading forward. Um, you meet with the legislative and legal services, that's the nonpartisan attorneys uh, that uh, work for the legislature. They're the ones that help the legislators draft bills and, and get things in, in correct legal language. Uh, but the proponents get to meet with them and they'll ask a series of questions about the initiative that you want to put forward. But you can, you, we could put forward an initiative that said, we want to introduce unicorns in Pueblo, Colorado and Pueblo only, right? Like, and legislature council would help them put that into legal yeah. language and, and then have it move along in the process. And right. there's nothing that they can do to stop it. There is no way at any point to challenge the merit or constitutionality of, of any initiative. So after legislative council, that's really the last, the meeting with legislative council, that's the last opportunity the proponents have to change the language in what gets submitted through the process. They can edit it. They can take the uh, council uh, of le legislative and legal services and that says, hey, you should put this word here, that word there. You should use this type of terminology. But then once it, it's done with that process, it goes to, to title board and title board has two jobs. One is to determine is this single subject. So in Colorado, we do have a law that everything that that gets put on the ballot from a citizen's uh, initiative standpoint has to be single subject. So a voter can't look at an initiative and say, well, I like that, but I don't like this. Right. So, so it, the other thing it, it has to be is yes or no. Uh, so it has to be very clear, but uh, so title board decides single subject. The second thing that they do is they set the title and that is shall the citizens of Colorado, yada, yada, yada. And then yes means yes, no means no. Um, they set those two things it, it, to be clear, easy to understand language, 
uh, common vernacular, don't use uh, charged messages, char charged words that might stimulate a voter to, to vote one way or another. Um, that's the process that we were at last Wednesday. Yesterday, uh, our organization, Colorado Farm Bureau, and six other, uh, six or five additional uh, livestock groups filed a petition for rehearing because the couple things. Two, uh, we don't believe that it is single subject. It contains uh, several different areas of law. It, it's talking about uh, changing criminal code. It talks about uh, uh, sexual contact with animals. Um, it's things that aren't related. Uh, that that that's the you know changing uh, when you can harvest an animal, uh, when you can slaughter an animal. Those, changing all of those things we feel are, are different subjects that voters should be able to at least evaluate on their own if the initiative was that way. The other thing we don't, we, we really want uh, the title board to relook at the language that's in there. Uh, we think some of the words that they use are emotionally charged. We yeah. think some of the words are confusing to the average voter. I'll give you an example. Um, a lot of us grew up in rural, uh, th that are on this podcast now, we grew up in rural communities. We know what animal husbandry means. Yes. I think if you talk talk to Joe on the street, does do they know what animal husbandry means as no. a term? And, and it's, it is something that we use in, in legalese. We use it in, in statute now, but it has a clear definition there. So... That's, that's what the job is going to be uh, of title board going forward is to go through that rehearing, uh, look at our arguments and ultimately decide, is this single subject? If they say, no, no, we agree with you. This has multiple subjects. Thank you for pointing that out. They'll kick it out. And, so, and, and, and the, the proponents have to go back to the drawing board. That so point. that was going to be my next question. If they kick it out, the proponents can always go back and take out a few things or, or, but reintroduce this to the title board yeah. under slightly different things. So they can, they can change it. How long do they have to tweak it before they run out of time? So they could probably submit uh, a, a, a ballot initiative. Anyone could submit a ballot initiative until probably sometime in April next year. Um, the, this ballot initiative uh, and, and many others that are being heard by title board now are aimed at the 2022 ballot. Okay. Uh, we have different restrictions, and I don't remember what they all are uh, as to what can go on in odd years versus mm -hmm. even years. Uh, but uh, they're aimed at, at 2022. But really, when, once you um, get closer to that April of 2022 timeline, you're getting close enough to the uh, election and the timeline that leads up to printing ballots that it really shortens the window for proponents to get go out and collect signatures. So this is going to be a fight for the next year, at it, least. It, it, cer it certainly could be if, if they want to keep coming back and, and pecking at it, uh, or if this initiative moves forward. Um, after the rehearing, we have, as, as opponents, have an opportunity to uh, petition the Supreme Court to look at our same arguments and whether they make sense. And Supreme Court has the same opportunity to either uh, kick it back to title board to change language and say, no, the, 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 the opponents have a, have a point or they could kick it out on single subject as well. So if they, if they at any time, can the proponents of the initiative yank the initiative? They can. Mm -hmm. they, yeah. Can they yank yeah. it at any time? Yep. yep. At any at any time, uh, really. Up until you, ballots are printed. Uh, up until really. ballots are printed, um, they could they 
the proponents can say, yeah, we're not going to go forward with this. How much does this cost? Well, let's see. So that's the crazy part right here. Everything that I've told you that the proponents have done hasn't necessarily had to cost them a dime. Okay. Um, certainly, if you're going to bring a citizen's initiative forward, you should probably have some kind of legal counsel, some kind of legal guidance as to to what you're doing beyond legislative and legal services. Yeah, I certainly appreciate those people, but it's not their job to write it for the proponents. Right. Um, but really, like if you and I want to bring forward an initiative, they're going to help us do it. And to this point, it can be it would could be absolutely free. I think it's when you get into more of the legal challenges that we start to see, are these guys really serious about this or are they not? When it comes to gathering uh, signatures for petitions, are they serious about this or are they not? There's uh, a whole cottage industry that's in Colorado that doesn't exist in many states where uh, people uh, have petition gatherers that go down the 16th Street Mall. They stand in front of every King Supers and City Market uh, in every metropolitan area. To do that. The and they get per signature yeah. per, per signature uh, to gather signatures. And so because they pay them per signature, those guys can get pretty aggressive. Yes, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a whole industry. I could talk for an hour on gathering <laughs> well, signatures I, I know. how much it costs. So if it gets to the point where they have to gather the signatures, how many do they have to have and where do the signatures come from? So uh, this is a statutory amendment. So in Colorado, we have, we have two levels. We have the constitutional amendment, statutory. Constitutional amendments require 2% of registered voters in each state Senate district. So you have to get representation from all of Colorado for a constitutional amendment. Um, this is a statutory amendment though. So this is just like the legislature passing a law. Um, this requires, uh, what is it? 5% of the voters who voted in the last general election for secretary of state for all candidates for secretary of state. So that number ends up being somewhere around 125,000 plus or minus six, 700. Um, so they need 125,000 valid signatures. And those could come from anywhere. It's not. And those correct. can come from anywhere in Colorado, as long as go. they're registered voters. And you know, you, you, you think about it that, well, yeah, that that's still a, a, a good bar to go across, but, but think about what we've done the last 20 years rock the vote and all the, you know, encouraging people to sign up and making it so easy to become a registered voter. Whether people are voting and participating in the process or not, the the, the amount of registered voters across Colorado and, and really across America is is going up every single year, right? So it, it does create a path that's easier for initiatives like this to get on the ballot. Mm -hmm. So, and I know this is, I, this is a very basic question for you, but I think it, um, it's interesting. Um, can you just do a signature online and that counts? Or does it no. have to be in person? Because I think there's a whole lot of people who believe that they can, they'll get an email and it says, hey, sign on to this. We need your signature for this. And they'll do it um, online. And that's not a real thing. Yeah. Um, you have to actually be in person and physically do that. But 125,000 is not a lot of signatures. No, no, and it's it's 125,000 valid signatures. Yeah. So one of the nice things about that is that generally means that with the the average rejection rate that you can anticipate when the Secretary of State goes through and starts looking and validating the signatures, they've actually got to get 
closer to 180 or 190,000 in order to have a higher confidence level that mm -hmm. when those signatures are checked, they'll actually cross that threshold for the, the number of valid signatures that's required. Very difficult to get without professional help. Exactly. Yeah, and, and that's why that industry is there. Those folks know how to get them signed properly and so that every signature they get counts as much as it possibly can. How much does the, do you know how much they have to spend to, on getting those signatures, that, that cottage industry? Do you know? Uh, roughly, maybe if you wanted to get, say, 50,000 signatures, you're going to spend at least $65,000. So it's just under a dollar signature is what the going rate is. Now, this may be a bit different because the, the criteria for the signature is different than just anybody signing it. So, you know, it might be two bucks a signature is what the cost is. So basically is. what you're yeah. going to spend. Yeah, it can float around. The market moves around yeah. based on demand and, and yeah. how many petition um, gatherers they are able to put into the field and that kind of thing. I mean, it can, it can cost, it took uh, about a million two uh, mm -hmm. to get Prop 114 on the ballot last go around. Um, so there's, there's significant sums there. And as yeah. we get closer to 2022 and the election and things start uh, making the ballot or getting their petitions out, then we see uh, the, the other side, the anti-initiatives, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of some famous ones that come to mind is last uh, time we got to vote on transportation. There was two different choices from two different groups with two different visions. Um, and, and both of them ultimately failed because they, they, kind of were there to is in in some circumstances drag each other down so mm -hmm. um that's unfortunate mm -hmm. uh when we we have needed infrastructure that we need funding but um at the same time that's those are the things that we see and then we then we see that signature collectors you know going as high as 10 11 12 dollars uh, a signature mm -hmm. um, because there is so much just demand for signatures people yeah. want to get on the ballot with competing measures yeah yeah this is all incredibly insane. So I remember this last um, this last election. There was it the most ballot or most items on a ballot ever in the history of Colorado, or was that the time before? Ooh. It was either the first or the second. It was either this first or second. So I think there was on we have one thirteen questions. It was thirteen. I, I, will say, I will say this. I don't know if it was the most, but when you look at what we were voting on last time it was all over the board yeah. yes it was it, it was it had to be the most subjects that we had ever yeah. voted on mm -hmm. you're voting on on whether or not we should be able to vote to raise fees we were voting on um uh, uh lowering the income tax we were voting on wolves we were voting uh, abortion limits. abortion limits like it was all over the board all right so we're out of time um right now this has been a great conversation. I appreciate it so much. Uh, we're going to support you. Action 22 is going to support you on your fight against pause. Um, and our entire board is behind you on that one. So um, Chad Forthman, I know you're listening because you're standing, you're sitting right across from me for the first time ever. Um, and all the, all the things they say when the stalker meets the stocky is totally not true. I can tell you that right now. Um, join us next week when I ask a lot more overly complicated questions and Brian finally reveals his stage name for when he was touring with a metal band and a punk band at the same time. We'll see you next week.
thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to 